taking sparkling water. I'm your host, Ewok Maxim. Couldn't decide if I was going to cross my legs or not just there. So we're starting off on a very sort of indecisive note, but that's all right. And <clears throat> this whole episode is going to be about me trying my hardest not to focus on my index finger where I burned my hand while cooking and I have this blister that um, it's itching and it hurts. But, um, ooh, don't focus on your index finger, Joachim. <sighs> I've had a busy couple of days. It's been good. Busy is good. I don't know if anyone else feels like this. I never hear anyone else say this, but, like, me and Dr. Luke talk about this all the time, that, like, we work hard, and when you're working, things are good. And then when you have a day off, you just like, you just wake up in this deep black hole where everything feels like it has no structure. And it's almost like it feels like the solution is to not have days off, that the good way of living is to just... You're a hunter-gatherer, and every day you just every day is kind of the same. Like every day is acceptable. Like you don't push yourself so hard that you need a day off to recover, but you do something every day, and you don't have days off. You always have to hunter-gather for food, or you're a farmer. But that's not how society is set up. Society is set up to where a work day is more than what you can do every day. Can't do a work day every single day. It'll kill you. And then you need a day off and then you feel terrible in your day off. I don't know. Maybe that's not how other people feel. I have had these super busy work days. It's, um, don't focus on your index finger just because it's itching and hurting. On Saturday, I was working at the restaurant. Also, I haven't decided if um, if talking about restaurant stuff is boring and I shouldn't do it, or if this is just a restaurant podcast. Like, I haven't decided. Am I even recording? Let me check. Oh, yeah. We good. Okay, I'm crossing my legs. Decisions. The paradox of choice. Decisions are being made. On Saturday, I was working at the restaurant, and we have this little bit of an issue with hosting. I don't know why. Now, hosting is difficult. I used to be a host in um, at Bastille French Bistro in Seattle, a restaurant that was taken out by COVID and does not exist anymore. Started by... Much lauded local celebrity chef, Chef Stoneburner, famous from such restaurants as Stoneburner. <laughs> such a such a narcissist, basic bitch move to name a restaurant after yourself. And also, you know what else is a narcissist, basic bitch move? Being named Stoneburner. <laughs> what a name, dude. Oh, my God. Anyway, so I was working at Bastille as a host, and it really made me... Um, respect hosts because damn dude when you're a host everyone gets mad at you everyone in the world gets mad at you 
Because as a host, you are the person, when someone walks into the restaurant, you're the person, you say hello to them. You say hello to the guest. You welcome them. You take a look at your whole situation and you pick a table for them and you bring them over there and you give them a menu. That's your whole job. And somehow in that micro task, in that like very sort of limited tiny thing you do there, you manage to get everyone annoyed. Starting with the guest. The guest is always mad that they don't get the table they want. Because you can't just be like, which table do you want? Because you have a plan. There's stuff going on. There's factors. So first of all, they're pissed that they don't get the table they want. And they point to the table they want. And they're like, that's the good one. Why can't I sit over there? And then you have to be like, I have a reservation for that table, which you do. And then whenever that exchange happens, every single time the person who booked that table, the reservation that you have in mind for that table, every single time, they just don't show up. So then these people just sit at the table they don't like, angrily having dinner, the whole time staring at the table they want where no one is sitting, where they could be sitting. And then when they leave, they just give you the stink eye and say, yeah, that was a nice reservation you had on that table I wanted that you wouldn't give me, you piece of shit. Every time they get mad. And you have to, like, not offer a table to them. You have to just do this, like, stern thing where you just, like, happily, giddily, with great decisiveness and sense of authority, but also smilingly, just walk them to where they are going to go. You start putting down the menus, and the whole thing feels really decided. Like, you can't have any sort of... You can't let any light... If you leave even the tiniest crack in the black box of the decision of where they are going, then they'll be like, hey, hey, could we go over there? Like sometimes if people are difficult, you have to just talk constantly and not give them a moment, like not give them a, a second to say anything. So you have to have all this like red stuff that's ready about like, okay, it's a special today is a Branzino. It's the whole Branzino. We're, we're grilling the whole Branzino for you here. And, and the set is wilted greens. And, and you have to have this like really, <laughs> really, you have to have it cocked and ready, this like whole spiel. You have to talk about the rooftop garden, you know? So the guest always gets mad at you. And... Um, the server always gets mad at you. Always. Because the server is like, everything is wrong, you know? Because there's so many considerations. You're, you're trying to see, you're trying to get all the servers an equal number of tables and an equal number of guests. So that it's sort of equal and so everyone is equally busy and it's never, you, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. It's always like I have too many or I have too few. Every time. Oh, when I was a host there at Bastille, oh, there were some, there was some real dragons working there. I, there was especially this one lady that had two kids. Man, she was a real dragon. And she would come and she would yell at me. And she was a mean son of a bitch. She scared me. I, I was so scared of her. And then, you know, 
the servers want like a lot of tables, but not too many in this little amount of time when they want to be there. And then anything that happens towards the end, they want nothing. Because if you give them a table at the end when they were trying to get out of there, then now they have to stay two more hours and now they're fucking livid and they come and they scream at you again. And then the manager is mad at you because it's like, it's your job to keep everyone happy. And somehow everyone is mad. Anyway, so at the place I'm working now, we sometimes we don't even do a host. The host is the host is like the youngest person in the building and and it's not a person of authority. It's not a person that adopts any sense of authority. So people just kinda go where they want to go. And then the way it played out on Saturday was like, I didn't I'm there and I'm hanging out and I'm having a good time and I'm kind of flirting with the bartender because god damn I got some really sort of spicy spicy flirtatious energy with this bartender (laughs) anyway so i didn't have any tables and everyone else had tables so i was just sort of wandering around helping people and then i'm wandering around in this one wing of the restaurant and i'm looking and i'm seeing like every single table in this section no one no one has anything it's just people sitting there with like empty water glasses and a knife and a fork and so i'm like oh the server must have like forgotten to get them water so i grab these water bottles and i start like watering these tables and then all the tables start talking to me like hey are you our server can we order and i'm realizing it like slowly dawns on me that there's this entire wing of the restaurant that's just completely forgotten about (laughs) there's no one there there's no one working there and we sat like there's 60 tables or something there's like 20 people sitting there and um yeah a server just left uh, in a, on a weekend evening shift at 7 p.m., he left because he had to go because he does landscaping at night or something. And he apparently thought he told the bartender that she was doing it, but she was training someone else, so she couldn't do it. So I just sort of like, okay, I could do it if you want. And so I take over these six tables. And man, that is a that is a situation, I tell you. When you have... Oh, you know what just dawned on me? I don't know why it just came to me just now, but like the other thing when I was a host, for some reason, that was the only role in the restaurant where like old gay men would like just like sort of sexually harass me. Like they would slip me a tenner walking in thinking that they need to do that to get a table. But it's like, bro, I'll get you a table if there's a table. If not, I'm not like I don't have anything extra. And they would just slip me in tenor, and then when they're leaving, they're like feeling like a baller, and and they would just like run their hand back of their hand all the way down my back, and just like, and it's like you know you're busy, you're sweaty, and the whole thing feels like invasive, and then just rest a hand on the top of my butt cheek and just like run a hand left and right, and I'm like, bro, bro, you're kind of you're coming in kind of aggressive here, bro. Yeah. Yeah, as a host, you also had to, like, um, consider so many considerations when you're at thinking about where to seat a guest. Because especially at Bastille, for some reason, we had all these regulars, like, old, rich men who were, like, lonely and had crushes on these oh, petite, blonde, hot little waitresses. And they would come in and want to talk to them. And then you had to like keep track of which rest, which waitress is actually grossed out by her stalker and doesn't want him in her section. 
and which one is all right with it because he tips good. So you have to like keep track of where their head's at with this and you have to like be real decisive about where they go because you're like their only line of defense against getting sexually harassed. Oh, and I, I remember these like, it was this one girl, her name was Emily. She was so, she was so pure and sweet looking and she was hot. And there was this old thin haired man who had a crush on her. And I remember this one time, it freaked me out so bad that for some reason that it was going to be a busy night. So all my tables, like I had an idea for every single table in the whole restaurant, but I sat this one two top in the corner and then he walks in and I seat him next to the two top. And he, he got so fucking mad at me because he wanted to like sit in a, in a quiet corner by himself. So he could have a long conversation with Emily on his own and say creepy things to her. And then I sat him like right next to a two top, which normally is fine, but, oh, he got so mad at me that, ooh, so awkward. Ooh. And then once I've decided I couldn't undo it. Ugh. What was I doing? What was I saying? Yeah. Anyway, so like on Saturday, I had these six tables that were all forgotten about. And, and um, and that's tough because that's like, then you're, um, they start out mad. I walk out, walk up there and I say hello to them. And they're already pissed because they've been sitting there for 25 minutes. And then there's six tables like that. And then they all want everything at the same time because they do not need to think about anything because they've been just staring at the menu all thirsty and hungry for 25 minutes and they're pissed. Okay. They're fucking pissed. And the thing is that it's a little bit like my specialty because I had these six tables at the same time and I just waxed them. You know, they came in for a wax appointment and I waxed these people's eyebrows, dude. I waxed their eyebrows. And then I also had my regular section and it filled up and whatever, you know, whatever. It got, it was the, it was one of the more difficult things I've ever done in there. But, but, um, then I finish up and I, <laughs> there was one funny thing that happened though. There was one funny thing that was said, which was that it was a table of four. It's like a dad. He's probably like 60. They tell me they're from San Diego. The dad is like 60 and the mom is like that, 55 or whatever. And the kids, the son and the daughter are probably like 30s or late 20s or something. And the dad is this like kind of uh, cantankerous guy who says things where he's always embarrassing his kids. And now they're in their late 20s. So they're trying to be like, they don't say anything anymore, but you know, they don't like it. And then in the middle of the meal, he keeps being difficult. Like he'll order a glass of wine and he'll see the bartender pour the glass of wine. And then I'm not magically there at the perfect moment to grab the wine glass immediately and bring it to him. So the wine glass sits and he can see it for like a moment before I get it to him. And he's like, I've been staring at that wine glass, like just saying all this bullshit. But then there's this moment where he's like, he asks me what my name is. I feel like a, I feel like that dad story I told in a really boring way, but you know, this is restaurant talk. Okay. He asks me what my name is. And I say, my name is Joachim. And he looks at his wife and he goes, 
Sometimes I feel like they make up these weird names just so that when they screw up, you can't identify them. That's what he said. Sometimes I feel like they make up these weird names so that when they screw up, you can't identify them. And it's like, wow, okay, that is so fucking dicey. It's like such a problematic thing to say. It's so funny to me. Because first of all, I'm right here. What do you mean they? Like, what do you mean they? I I don't even know what you mean they. Who are they? It's almost like he's so used to offending people of color that he's just using that. He's just recycling that attitude and those lines with me. I don't know. But he's talking about me in third person. And then the secondly is clearly problematic because he's otherizing me. Just because my name isn't fucking Parker White, you know? Just because my name isn't Steve. All right? My name isn't Steve. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry my name isn't Steve, but, and this is what I told him, actually. I go, well, you know, sir, I grew up in Sweden, and in third grade in Sweden, there was like three other Joachims in my class, okay? So, it's kind of like my name is Steve. In Sweden, Joachim is kind of like Steve, okay? And in Sweden, I knew a guy named Steve, and he pronounced it Steve. And he was kind of weird. Or like, no, I mean, his name was weird. Was he a weird guy too? <laughs> yes and no. Okay, I keep I keep looking at my index finger. Don't look at your index finger, bro. Don't look at your itchy index finger. Don't touch it. Don't itch it. Just, just be at peace with it. So this old man, I mean, I don't know, dude. I just, it just cracked me up. I was just thinking about it all night, like... Anyway, it's just a funny, problematic thing to say. But then I come home at midnight on Saturday, and I'm so tired. Because I've also, like, been sick. I did a COVID test. I never had COVID. I've been sick, but I had this weird constricted feeling in my lungs where I couldn't take full breaths. And I um, had, like, this weird shallow cough where I couldn't really cough. And I, I just kept going to work. And so I work and then I come home and then I hit the NyQuil, just fall asleep, sleep 10 hours, go back to work. And I just did that and it got me so tired in the end. But on Saturday, I come home at midnight and I'm so tired after this difficult shift where honestly, last thing I say about it is that, and this is a brag and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend like it's not a brag, but like dealing when there's a problem like when the kitchen is really behind and food is taking 40 minutes for everyone or when six tables were just forgotten about and they wait 25 minutes before anyone even says hello to them, that's kind of my specialty. And when you give me those six tables, bro, and then I have a full section of my own in the other end of the restaurant, it's kind of my specialty. And I'll do it, man. I'll do it. And at the end, they tip... My tip average, the average tip percentage was way higher than normal because I just really enjoy being completely 
real with people and just acknowledging that a mistake was made and just being really hearing them out and leaning in hard on that and utilizing what Dr. Luke says is the the six layers of fucking validation of something, six steps of validation in cognitive behavior therapy, where the last one is always that you look them in the eye and you just say like, like, I hear what you say that you're feeling and, and now I am feeling it too. Because you've really communicated that feeling so well that it is now in my heart also. And that feeling that you're feeling is so valid and so justified. And it's almost, you sh like, there's no other way you should be feeling. Everything is as it should be in your heart. All of your reactions are reasonable. And anyone who went through what you went through here would feel the same way. And then they tip me 30%. But anyway, so I come home at midnight and I'm, I'm, I find Javier in his bed and he's working and blah, it's crazy. And he's, he's got so many things going on and he's so busy and he's like chugging yerba mate energy drinks at midnight. Cause he's like, I'm like, I'm going to stay up for another 36 hours and just work. And, um, he's watching the matrix too. And, um, I haven't had any dinner. And then we kind of like watch The Matrix for a bit. And then at 1 a.m. I'm like, should we go get some smack in the smack? Because Jack in the Box is the only thing that's 24 hours around here. And man, Jack in the Box is the worst, dude. It's so bad. They have the worst menu of anything because they have everything. They have like burgers and like sourdough grilled chicken sandwiches. And then they also have tacos. Like if you want to a beef taco or a potato taco. And then they have like Asian food. Like they have spring rolls, like deep fried spring rolls. And then they have breakfast food and like scrambled eggs in a burrito. Like, bro, you can't have everything. So it all tastes terrible. It all tastes absolutely awful, but there's nothing else. And I've gone there I'll tell you right now that I've gone there at midnight and there's been like 14 cars in the, in the, in the line and each car, it, it just has to wait for five minutes and I just sit there for 45 minutes. Anyway, so at 1am, Javi and me are like, should we go get some smack in the smack? And I knew that it was a bad idea. I just knew it because nothing is less reliable than Jack in the Box around here. It's like KFC in Seattle. KFC in Seattle is like, it's always an active crime scene. It's always like someone did something to someone. The cops are always like on their way in or on their way out. It's like the most sketchy place in the whole city in, of Seattle. But here it's Jack in the Box and here it's tweakery. Here it's tweaked out. And for those that don't know, when I say that it's tweakery, that means that everyone who works there smokes methamphetamine for a living, okay? So at 1 a.m., we drive over to Jack and Box, and I'm expecting a long line, and in my head, I'm like debating if this is even a good idea, and I'm debating like, if how long of a line am I going to try to get Javi to turn around? And then we get there, and there's no line, so we just roll up on the window, and I'm like, this is excellent, 
and we roll up and I'm like thinking about what I want. You know, I'm going to get the, the grilled chicken sourdough sandwich because how bad can you fuck it up? And then the lady is just like, you have to come back in 25 minutes. I, I gave everyone a break. Everyone is on a break. And it's like, oh, it's 1 a.m., bro. You want me to come back in 25 minutes? So we like drive around and I'm like, let's just go to Safeway to the grocery store and get some food. So we go to Safeway and they're closed. And Javi was all disappointed because he was going to return his movie that he had rented. He'd rented a DVD from Redbox. He was going to return it at Safeway because he's the only person left in America that will rent a physical DVD. Like, bro, come on, man. Anyway, so um, so we go to a gas station. Oh Christ! We go to a gas station and consider getting like gas station gas station croissants for dinner, and um, and then we're like, "Fuck it, let's go back to Jack in the Box." And so we go back there. <laughs> we go back there, dude. And when we go back there, it's a shit show, dude. And there's this like larger woman. She's like very large. The kind of large that you really only see working in fast food in rural America. The kind of large where there's like these weird baby seals hanging under her arms. And this lady is white, white as a ghost. And she's in the middle of the street screaming at everyone that that they're closed. We're closed, she says. We're closed. And I'm like, fucking fuck. Why did we just drive around town in the middle of the night at 1 a.m. for 25 minutes and then come back here just to find out that they're closed? Why couldn't she have told us that they were closed 25 minutes ago? So we roll up on her and we're like, hey, lady, you told us 25 minutes. And when we say that, she starts crying. The very large lady starts wailing. <laughs> she just she's just sobbing. And she's like, they they didn't come back. They didn't come back. And I mean that really, you know, to me that's that's fascinating and that really it's a story about how tenuous the whole social contract of society is. And a business is such a flimsy social contract. A business is this idea where you get a bunch of people together and you tell them all to show up at different times and do different stuff. And what if none of them show up? Then the reality is becomes obvious that there's nothing really there other than just this this like breakable promise of something will get done because sometimes nothing gets done. And that night at 1.25 a.m. at Jack in the Box on Brunswick, nothing got done because there was only this fat lady strung out on methamphetamines and she cried and she screamed and I felt guilty making her feel bad. I didn't want to make her cry, but I did. I did make her cry because they didn't come back. She let them go on a break. 
at 1 a.m. It's like, what? <laughs> you got to stagger it, lady. That's the thing about a business. You got to stagger it. You got to stagger it and not let them all go on a break at the same time. Because if you keep three of them in there and let one of them go on a break, then those three will stay inside of that breakable promise and they will not break the promise and they will keep working and they will, and stuff will keep getting done and it will look like a business and the light will be on and the hands will move and that terrible food will get served. And then the one person will come back and you can give another person a break, but you gave them all a break at the same time. And these people are high schoolers, okay? And they're up to no good. And they're probably doing whippets in the in the walk-in fridge, you know? They're probably doing whippets in the walk-in, you know? So, uh, we got home very, very late. And then we, yeah, I mean, we went back to the gas station and got a gas station croissant and and it wasn't good and I didn't eat it. And I went to bed very, very late and, um, with no sleep. And then I woke up early with my manager calling me saying, I was scheduled to work that night, but he called me in the morning and said, will you work in the morning instead? Because no one showed up. And when he calls me and texts me and says this, all I can hear are the echoes of that fat woman in the middle of the street, you know? I could, you know, her tears, her tears echoing, uh, reverberating in my inner ear, like Joan Didion would say. And uh, so I had to do it. I had to go help. I was actually going to play poker with, with Ivan and the boys, but I blew off poker and I went in to work brunch because no one showed up and I had to help. And, and I um, I wanted that breakable promise, the metaphor of what a business is. I wanted the show to keep going. And um, yeah. But before going in, I was like, okay, I'll work in the morning now and I'll work brunch and it's all good. But but if I'm working now, then I can't work tonight. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. come in for brunch, work in the morning. You don't have to work tonight. And I'm like, okay, good. Cause my ankle's hurting and I can't do it. You know? And then <clears throat> they never let me go. <laughs> and at 6 p.m. Yeah. At 6 p.m. They were like, okay, we've got 10 tables for you now. And then I, I worked until 9 p.m. I worked until 9 p.m. And it was a scam. And, and I got tricked. I got tricked. And that's okay. Because I got tricked into making more money. And uh, the money's pretty good. So... Um, so that's good. Let's drink a water. Today we're doing plum. We have three sparkling waters here. They're all plum flavored. We are working our way through this shoddy, unreliable, some of them are okay, some of them are really bad, Kimino brand. Ume, which is Spanish. No, it's Japanese for plum. Now... Looking at this, there's quite a bit of particulates in this. 12% juice. I love this glass bottle, though. 
these glass bottles after drinking them, I've been putting them in the dishwasher because it's such a beautiful, like simple bullet shape. And then because it's kind of like a, um, not a super established brand, if you put this in the dishwasher, the entire label comes off clean. And then you just have this super simple, completely clean bullet shaped glass bottle. And then I've been pouring iced coffee in it. And then I've been pouring a little bit of eggnog in there and just putting them in the fridge. And every morning I just roll out of bed, grab a bullet shaped, beautiful product design, iced coffee with eggnog flavors. And, um, I drink that on the porch and it's been better than the actual Kimono sparkling water. But, um, <clears throat> but plum, I have some hopes for plum though. The Japanese, they do plum very well. When I was a kid, we had a plum tree. I ate our plum. It was underwhelming. But in Shanghai, one of the apartments I lived in, I lived in an apartment on West Huaihai Road, right off of Huaihai. And um, I lived there with Sebastian, Eric Wong, and Wendy Wang. And right at the entrance of the apartment complex, there was a Japanese restaurant. That was the best part. I mean, it was incredible. It was actually a really beautiful year in that apartment. And, and that Japanese restaurant was a big part of it because they had this beautiful barbecue menu. A little bit of sushi, a little bit of sashimi, lots of barbecued fish. Like you get a whole mackerel. And just like, so simple. Use a barbecued up skin on mackerel. You squeeze some lemon on it. And it's like, what's better than that? Just that high oil content that really stands up well to the smokiness of the, the char on the surface of it. Crispy, simple, beautiful flavors. And then what they had there, which is why I'm bringing it up, is they made their own plum wine. Now, a lot of people have had plum wine. There's a very famous brand, Choya. It's available all over the place in America and in Wajimaya in Seattle and all the, you know, import stores. I find that stuff a little bit, there's too much sugar and there's too much acidity in there. It's not a very clean, it's too loud. It's too much like a, it's syrupy and weird. But that's also a very nice glass bottle that Choya comes in, actually. It's this long green cylinder. The Japanese, they do know product design. They do know about product design. And I mean, I'll, I'd drink the shit out of some Choya back when I was a, back when I was armed and dangerous and as an alcoholic. But, <clears throat> but, um, that, that little Japanese restaurant on West Huaihai Road. They made the rum plum wine and they, they had these um, big glass vats and you could see them. It's a beautifully designed restaurant. You know, just like the simple classic Japanese restaurant look with with um, these fabric tablets hanging to cover the door and you just like get your, you just spread them apart and get in there and there's lots of wood paneling like nice varnished varnished light colored wood and like you sit on the floor and there's a bar and you can sit up at the bar and when you sit up at the bar you have a perfect view of these like all this row of vats elevated like probably three meters up in the air just like on this high shelf 
and they all have a spigot. And the one on the left is just plain plum wine that they make themselves. And the, all the other ones are flavored. And they're flavored with all these different fruits and berries. And they were all just delicious. Because it was like low sugar, low acidity, just like a beautiful plum base. And then some stuff in there. And it was so crisp and it was so... It just had this beautiful small batch handmade quality to it. And the old man would just go up to the spigot and just hold a glass real high and he could barely reach it. And he would hold the glass up under the spigot and fill a cup for you of like some fucking strawberry flavored plum wine. And and it was beautiful. And so I'm wondering if this will bring me back there. Let's try it. Okay, Ume. So this is a glass bottle, 12% juice. All right, a little bit of a fizz. I am thirsty right now. Damn, it's been 37 minutes already. God damn it, I talked about restaurants for way too long there. Okay. Okay, that's good. Yes. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Ah, that's nice. That's very nice. The kimonos, they've been unclean, unreliable, the different flavors, the weird citrus, the lemon, whatever. It's been not good. This plum, because plum is like, plum isn't this brand that's so, there's no hype around plum. Plum is for people who are like in the know, you know? Plum is that bartender's bartender, you know? Oh, God damn it, that works. That's so good. All right, that's 9 out of 10 right there. Uh, yeah, that's 9 out of 10. So the other thing I was thinking about, oh, this is such a like rant rant. I don't know. I, um, I've been spending some time, I went on a couple of dates with this girl and, and one, oh, do not focus on your index finger or how it hurts or how it itches. Okay. I got to throw this thing in across the room. Excuse me. I've been spending some time with this girl and we're very, very different and she's not an alcoholic and she's not troubled because I had this theory that that's what I should go for. I should find a life partner who is not so troubled. Oh, that actually brings up this other thing that I... I want to say this out loud, even though it's like, it's mean and horrible and everything, but I was married for five years. We were extremely connected. We were extremely similar. We understood each other very, very well. There was a lot of mental health issues on her side and some of them morphed and some of them turned into her abusing the shit out of me. And that's a part that I have worked on and I am not so scared of that anymore. And it's fine, but we were just so close and there was a lot of trauma bonding when you have these extremely strong, difficult experiences together that you come out of 
feeling like you're so bonded because you've experienced that together that you cannot ever leave each other and it doesn't matter that stuff is bad. So now that I've been single for a while, sometimes when I have a little bit of a dark night of the soul, sometimes when I just feel like I'm ending up with these like shallow connections with people, sometimes there's this like weird abused dark corner of my mind. I don't even want to say abuse. There's just this thought that comes to me from a place of weakness that maybe I should reach out to her and try to rekindle things. Because she did reach out to me in December. Last December. And ask if I wanted to do a phone call. And I just feel like she wouldn't have done that if she was with someone new and had figured life out and was pregnant or whatever. I think if I call her today, I could... I mean, I broke up with her. And she didn't want to break up. And I broke up with her and... <clears throat> but the thing I was going to say that came to me very recently is that, oh God, stop focusing on your index finger. Um, it's that she had this thing where she would just like cry. She would cry in this inconsolable way. Like she was choking, like she was gagging. Like she was, she would cry in this really sort of infinite way. Like there was a real tears all the way down. It's just tears. It's just crying all the way down. She would cry in this way. And it's, and I, I just wasn't the man for her because I just have this slightly exaggerated empath quality where I cannot unplug from people. Like if there's another person in the room, I cannot in any way focus on anything I'm doing on my own. I have to focus on the other person, which is why I could never work in an office successfully. Every time I had an office job, like when I worked at the Swedish Chamber of Commerce, when we were at the office... I wouldn't get any work done. And then pretty quickly, I would, um, hold on, the phone is unplugged. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. The phone is charging and the phone is going. Um, when I worked as a Swedish chamber, we would like hang out all day. And when I had work done pretty quickly, I figured out how I could be like, okay, I can, I can lock up. Like I can just be here after you leave. So everyone would leave at 5 PM and that's when I would start working. And I would just work for like three hours until 8 PM and get like so much done alone in the office between 5 PM and 8 PM. <clears throat> and then I would leave because I'm just too much of an empath and in a way that I cannot control, in a way that's not where I'm not humble bragging. It's not like a good thing. Like empath is kind of a good brand and it sounds good and stuff, but it's like not. It's not like a good thing. It's good to be a normal level of empathetic. Bro, the other, hold on.
Oh, I don't know about this video recording. This video recording might not work, but whatever. Um, the point is that I... Um, my ex-wife had this thing that she did always. The first year I met her, all five years of our marriage, she did this thing where she would cry like in this real sort of deep space, event horizon, black hole, crying kind of way. And I would just like look at her and I would just take on so much of that. And I had forgotten about that. It's been three years since we broke up. And uh, I don't, I didn't think about that for the three years. And then sometimes I think maybe I should get back together with her. And then last night, for some reason, that just came to me. It just came to me that she cried like that frequently, sometimes every day. And how upsetting that was for me. And when I remembered that she cried like that, I realized that I'm not the man for that situation. You know, I shouldn't go back there. It's such a fucking mean thing to say. And I don't know what to say about how mean I'm being there, but that's what that is. Fuck. Ooh. Okay, let's move on to something barely lighter, just equally dark. But um, I've been spending time with this one girl, and she asked me. She's not troubled. She's a more normal person. And she asked me if I ever wanted to be famous. And she said that she didn't, she never had a desire to be famous. And then I had to be honest and say, yeah, like, I, I mean, always as a teenager in my 20s, I just had this feeling like I wanted to be famous. And that is a very embarrassing thing to say out loud. It's very embarrassing. It's not cool. It's not a cool thing to say. It's cool to be famous. It's cool to be good at something and get famous for that. It's cool to be motivated and work hard on something. Like, it's cool to say, I want to be the best, like, fucking bow and arrow guy in the world, you know? I want to be the best in the world at high jump. And then you are the best in the world at high jump, and then you get famous. And then all of those, every step of that is cool. But to just say that you start with the feeling of wanting to be famous is deeply uncool. As it should be. And when I had that feeling as a teenager, I always knew that there was something wrong. That there's something like, that you shouldn't feel that way. That that's not, that there's something wrong with your psychology if you just start with a feeling of wanting to be famous without it having an object, without knowing what you want to be famous for. And then I never really, I always felt ashamed of it and I always felt like I shouldn't feel that way, but I never knew how to like change that in myself because I never really understood it, I think. And then it wasn't until she asked me that like a week or two ago, because now I'm reading all this AA literature 
and I'm doing the steps and I'm all, I'm, I just, I think I'm kind of finishing step three tomorrow. I, I started over. You have to always be working the steps and I started over and I'm on step three, about to get to step four and I'm in, I'm, I have this, all the literature is really front of mind and There's a literature, and then I went to a meeting, and they read a part that I had just read, and 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 I understood it for the first time, and it's so interesting to me that I never understood it before. But what it really is is like when you're like 15 and you you think you want to be famous, what you really want is like you just want like a tribe, and you want to be known. And you want people to know your name and you want people to want you and need you and love you. Like that's all. And then the way our culture is set up now with like the internet and with like atomization and like this incredibly individualistic sort of setup and how we're all so disconnected. And when you live in a city and all of those things contribute to this sort of weird misunderstanding in your subconscious where it feels like the only way to to be known and loved and needed is to be famous and it's like clearly if you think about it or like if you think about it rationally that's clearly not actually the answer like as much as because it could be the answer for those people who are famous that they now feel loved and needed and and all of those things. But I don't actually, I think it's pretty clear though that it's not. Like what you want is a sense of connectedness and you, what you really want is to have 15 people. I mean, I say, I feel like I say this in every episode, but it is kind of the most important thing. Like that we, what we want as human beings is a tribe. And what that means is that we have 15 people around us who know us and we know them and we trust that they will remain there. And we trust that they need us and love us and want us. And we trust, and it's like this sort of unconditional love where maybe they're, maybe they make fun of you one day and maybe they're fucking not there for a couple of days, but you know that in the long run, in the big picture sense, you trust that your tribe is there for you. That's what we want. We want that sense of connectedness and we don't have that. And then we tried to solve that with like antidepressants and Xanax or drinking or, I mean, addiction stuff. And uh, I mean, that goes back to the book Lost Connections by Harari. I don't know what the author's name is anyway, but it's a book called Lost Connection where he he just talks sort of about how a lot of different situations in modern society, you end up with a human being that's depressed and we try to put them on SSRIs, antidepressants, but really what they need is kind of just like, they just kind of need to feel connected. There's like, they're just lonely and they just need other humans and a more old school. I don't know why this is, why am I the person saying this? Because I'm, I'm like this city person. 
I spent my whole life talking about how CDs are the good stuff, and then now this is my crusade. I don't know. I don't know. I um, I just wanted a sense of belonging. But my subconscious misunderstood that and thought that what that means in this, in modern society is to be famous. And that led me down the wrong path and I was on the wrong path for decades. And, um, and I started out with the feeling of wanting to be famous and then I had to decide what I wanted to be famous for and then I picked quite arbitrarily that I wanted to be famous for writing books. Partly because I did, there is something in the act of writing that I do really enjoy. And partly because I just found it to be a respectable concept. I liked the idea of it. So I spent a very, 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 very long time years and years, probably 20 years of my life, constantly saying, no, I can't go do that with you. No, I can't do a good job at this, at my day job. No, I can't do this thing that would make money. I can't. Constantly putting everything in the back seat so that I could work on the craft of writing. And I wrote multiple books and then they all came out shit, and then this year I finished a book, and it's good. But I wrote it for all the wrong reasons. And um, I wrote it because I wanted to be famous, I thought. But really I wrote it because I thought that I would write it, and then people would read it, and then they would say, oh yeah, like you're good enough. And you belong here with us. And we want you and we need you. And we know you. I just wanted to be like known. I just wanted the people to like see me. And. Uh, and then. I have later realized that there are many, 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 many problems with. Thinking that writing a novel is. How you are arrive at a sense of belonging. First of all, who reads anymore, bruh? Who reads a whole book anymore? You know who reads? Women. Women read. And you know what women like to read? Books written by women. <laughs> oh my God. Now it's almost like I have to bring up that. <sighs> I did get a hilarious rejection letter once. Yeah, okay, I have to read that rejection letter to you now. And we're really back. So, I wrote a novel, I submitted it to literary agents. It was a much less depressing experience than I thought. People were actually very nice. Uh, they were very open. Um, partly, I think it's Honestly, I thought about doing a whole episode on this because it's such a big psychological journey. But partly I think it's like I couldn't 
query a bunch of agents until I was in a place psychologically where I was just cool with it all. I couldn't, because I queried a bunch. And I couldn't do that until I was cool with it all enough so that when they then rejected me, it's like, I'm actually pretty cool with it. And I would get, I would have a specific email address set up for literary agents and it would ping. And and when it would ping, I would not have that big of a rush of emotion of expectation or anything when I would check it. And then when it would be something that was, if it was a rejection or whatever, it wouldn't get that big of an emotional response in me. I would feel pretty cool about it all. And sometimes I would feel pretty good about it. Some of them were very nice. And it just sort of painted this not black and white picture where I didn't, it, it's not a simple yes or no. It's more like I'm realizing that the whole thing of getting published is like this very, very difficult sort of industrial thing where it's like there's a cut, there's very few publishing houses and they just have this like really short wish list of things that they want right now. And if you happen to write something that's not on that list right now, then you're kind of not going to go anywhere. And it's like, it doesn't really mean that you're not a good writer and it's not really like, it's fine. Anyway, <clears throat> I got this rejection letter. I um, should probably not say his name. <laughs> I mean you know yeah anyway i should probably not say his name the book is called the potato eaters of shanghai <sighs> do i need to set this up more i don't think so i'm i'm bringing up this letter because it's funny and because i'm saying that because i said that thing that like women read and they like to read books by women and I think this is just like, I'm not even attaching any value to this statement. I think it's just statistically kind of true that women read a little bit more than men, especially fiction. Women read way more fiction than men. And this is a capitalist society. And it's just that just creates this feedback loop of like literary agents are mostly women. And they, bosses at publishing houses are mostly women. And they look mostly for women authors who would write something that would sort of speak to women. It's like, it sounds really sexist and shitty when you say it out loud, but it's like, because it is, because it is the other side of the coin where you're kind of like, yeah, you got Hollywood and there's white people making movies for white people because America is mostly white people and they like to watch movies with white people. And that is a little bit shitty, you know? It's capitalism and it's like the the least shitty economic system we have and it's like the it's what we do and and we try to fix it a little bit around the edges and stuff, but because I sometimes I yeah, I don't know, sometimes I can sometimes I can get annoyed with PC culture and feel like forcing women and minorities into things is that then comes out shitty. It's like you're not really helping anything here. You're not really helping anything making a bunch of shitty movies just because they have minorities in them. Like Some of these things have to grow organically. You can't really force some of this stuff. You know? Like the movie Hidden Figures. That's a terrible movie. I said it. Um, <laughs> so, 
Here we have a very, very, very sexist rejection letter. Dear M. Joachim Erickson, thank you for the opportunity to review a synopsis and an excerpt of the above-mentioned work. On the one hand, I enjoyed your proposal. Semicolon. <laughs> this is such a pretentious letter, dude. Semicolon. On the one hand, comma, I enjoyed your proposal. Semicolon. Your writing is clever, witty, and intelligent. And he had an Oxford comma there afterward, after the word witty. And I do appreciate a well-written satire. Is my book satire? I don't know. On the other hand, this is a very difficult genre to sell, particularly particularly by a debut author. My book is called The Potato Eaters of Shanghai. It's about a Swedish man who lives in China, a young Swedish man, who searches for a sense of belonging, who lives his early life in China with his parents and then his parents move back to Sweden and he decides to stay in China and and then when he is in China alone he wants to reclaim a connection to his Swedish roots and he decides to call his Swedish friend Ingrid and she tells him to do this to perform this traditional folkloric ritual of burying a potato that looks like a baby, hoping that this potato will take root and grow up to be a, a creature that will protect him. A protective totem. And then what happens is that he works at this financial firm in Shanghai and and a job applicant shows up and she looks like a potato and he realizes that the potato he buried is now working at his company and she's taking care of him and she's protecting him. And she looks like a potato. And all throughout the novel, there are these folkloric elements where you don't know if he's just thinking about it wrong and everything is actually normal or if magic is real. That's never defined in the book. That's the book, okay? It's magical realism, okay? This is very difficult. Now I'm reading the um, rejection letter <laughs> again. Um, this is a very difficult genre to sell, particularly by a debut author. About 80% of editors at at the big five U.S. publishers are women. And women, in my experience, don't like well-written satire. <laughs> so that leaves about 20% of potential editors. Is that the men? Potential editors are, is a euphemism for men here. Also, in my experience, older editors don't like well-written satire either. So that leaves 10% of potential editors. Most imprints don't publish satire. That leaves roughly 3 to 5% of potential editors. Let's say half of those editors like to look at the book and take it to their respective editorial review board for approval. About 80% of editorial re uh, review board members at the big five U.S. publishers are women. And women, in my experience, don't like well-written satire. <laughs> like, that's how his letter is written. It's so fucking funny and it's so horrible and sexist. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck you. Next paragraph here. If you read publishing industry trade journals like Publisher's Lunch, which I, I pay $20 a month to 
to have access to the full back end. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm in the industry. I'm trying to take this seriously. I'm trying to be a grown up about writing a book. I wrote a couple of novels. I'm so important. My name is Joachim. You know, the two doctors. The two doctors is this little chat group where I talk to two doctors and they listen to the podcast and they talk about it. And then one of the doctors hurt my feelings because he was like, he listened to my podcast before knowing me. And he said, who is this fucking self-obsessed blonde cunt with a mullet? <laughs> and then now he's my friend and now he loves the podcast. And I, and he told me that. And I was like, that hurt my feelings. And then he's like, no, no, it's, it's a compliment. But I'm like, oh, is it though? Is it though? Anyway, let's keep reading this rejection letter. If you read publishing industry trade journals like Publisher's Lunch, you will see many deals for books by women writers. Acquired by women editors that deal with issues of social justice, particularly gender and racial inequality. So, perhaps you can understand how a political satire involving a Swedish white protagonist, parenthesis, read. So, he does this thing where he does start parenthesis and then the word read and then colon and then a word to, to sort of explain what that, how to think about that. So he's like, you can understand how political satire involving a Swedish white protagonist read social privilege in contemporary China, parenthesis, read COVID, and parenthesis, who views the leader of the CCP, parenthesis, read adversary, and parenthesis, as a father figure and conjures a scapegoat out of a potato, read, <laughs> parenthesis, parenthesis, read, Low-carb diets. <laughs> I mean, this is a very difficult paragraph to read out loud. But he's saying that all of these things are turnoffs. A Swedish protagonist, a white Swedish protagonist is a symbol of social privilege. Contemporary China is a symbol of COVID. The leader of the CCP is an adversary. And then the, the fact that it's about a potato is is a symbol of low-carb diets. And that's... No, I mean, it's a symbol of a high-carb diet and women, women, women don't like well-written satire or carbohydrates. <laughs> you can see how perhaps this might be a tough sell to a general American readership, at least in this day and age. Not impossible, but tough. If you feel otherwise, please convince me and I will reconsider my position. Otherwise, I'm not confident I can sell your work. It will be a very heavy lift. And the word very is in italics. Hoping I'm wrong. And then his name that I won't say out loud. <sighs> so when I get a letter like that, I find it incredibly amusing. And it's also a very problematic letter because it's incredibly sexist. But I mean, there's a Part of the conclusion that I agree with in a, where I, I don't agree with this value statement he has about it of how he clearly, ooh, he clearly has a problem with women. And I honestly don't have a problem with women. And if men don't read, then okay, you know, I made a mistake. I spent 20 years of my life writing a book that's not about women's issues. That's, 
not how I should say that. Women are human beings and women are interested in all issues. And women read fiction and women read good fiction and women are definitely open to reading fiction by men. As an industry, perhaps, there's a little bit of an obstacle because as an industry, these different art, like the, like the movie industry and, you know, music industry, like they, I do believe that they tend to be a little bit relying on crutches and formulas and they are a little bit risk averse. And if they, if the executives of the big five publishing houses know statistically that their audience is mostly women, then maybe they will go with an easier sort of easy, a more low risk choice of maybe picking a woman writer who talks about something else. And I'm okay with that. The point is that I only wrote this book because I wanted a sense of belonging anyway. Yeah. And um, getting the book published is probably not even the best way to get to a sense of belonging. Um, getting the book published will probably not get me a sense of belonging at all. A sense of belonging comes from staying in one place and making friends and finding and loving people and building a tribe. And maybe I'm doing that. And maybe that's going pretty well. And if that goes well enough, maybe I don't need to publish a novel. So let's drink another water. Kimino. Uh, <clears throat> also plum. Wait, 1%? Contains 1% juice? <laughs> that's very confusing. All the other ones are like... 12, 24, 36, 15, and now we're doing one. Kimono sparkling water in a can, plum juice, 1% juice. Does it smell like anything? Yep, it smells like plum. <sighs> you know what? That's also very nice. That's also very nice. Two calories versus 58 calories of the previous one. So this one, wow, just like a tiny sprinkle of, it's like plum spindrift. Very few calories. Yeah, I like the previous one more, but this one's good too. So plum is the best one in the whole Kimino arsenal. Plum is the best one. Oh, man. 
And then that guy, he ended the rejection letter with like, if you have any other thoughts, you know, if you feel otherwise, try to convince me. And then I emailed him back and was like, had some questions and stuff. Because he was so engaged with me. He, excuse me, he wrote this long letter to me, you know. Like, it's such a well-written Oxford comma semicolon letter that I was like, oh, so maybe I can have a conversation with this man. But really, he just wanted to get, like, some some anti-women. He just wanted to express a little bit of anti-women sentiment. And um, be done with it because he didn't respond to anything I said after that. Ugh. He wasn't my man. But there's one person interested in my novel. She's a Canadian literary agent and she's been thinking about it for six months now. And I've heard that that's what it is what it's like. I think I've heard that it takes a very long time. If it works out, it's the kind of thing that's very slow. Because a person needs to read the whole book. And then they need to bring it to someone else. And sort of ring it up to the chain of command. And different people need to okay, like agree. And every person needs a bunch of time to read it along the way. So it takes like fucking forever. So I haven't been rejected by her. We've gone back and forth with like 20 emails. And she keeps telling me to wait. And I just want to self-publish and be done with it. But I also feel like it's disrespectful to myself to not wait until she says no. But there's this difficult thing because the novel is set in near future China. And... Xi Jinping, the president of China, is a very large character in the book. And it's it's like auto-fiction, autobiographical fiction, where it's really sort of about me, and it's about my dad, and it's about like how I didn't really have a father figure, but in the novel it has all these other magical realism elements, and, and I'm really trying to say something about politics. And, and in the book... The whole left by the sort of alcoholic clinical depression dad is filled a little bit by by President Xi Jinping because he's always on TV and he's always telling you how to live your life and he's always looking you in your eye in this like human way that's very useful. And sure, he does speeches where there's so much fluff and it's like, it, they're so boring. But he's also just a good guy walking around shaking hands and and he wants the best for all of us. That's how you feel. That's how you feel sometimes when you're in China. At least President Xi wants the best for all of us. And and the, what many Chinese people think is that local politics is fucked. The politician close to you on your county level, on your township level. He is super corrupt and, and he you can bribe him to get what you want or you can not bribe him and have your life ruined and and it sucks. But 
if President Xi knew what the township level cadre is doing, then then President Xi would make it all good. Because it's easy in China to feel like the guy at the top is good. And I don't know if that's true, but but that's how it feels in the novel, and and um, that's how it can feel in China, and that's what the novel is about. And and this Swedish young person growing up in China is. He has these sort of imaginary conversations with Xi Jinping and, and it's it starts the first time he sort of like loses touch with reality a little bit and thinks that President Xi is talking to him directly is during the 2022 Winter Olympics. When President Xi holds a speech and he kind of thinks that he's speaking directly, the, the protagonist of the novel thinks that President Xi is speaking directly to him. And the issue with that is... But that was great writing when I wrote it like four years ago about near future China. But the issue now it's that it's almost 2022 Winter Olympics time. And I read a headline today that the Olympic torch is traveling towards Beijing and it's about to happen, bro. So I have to publish this novel before the Winter Olympics happens because I've written out the entire speech of what President Xi Jinping will say when he opens the Olympics. And it's great. It's great writing. But <laughs> but it doesn't work if I publish it after the Olympics happens. So this is like truly one of the most stressful things in my entire life. That this fucking Canadian woman won't reject me. If she will just reject me, I can self-publish and I can just have it be like, okay, yeah, the novel was published in 2021 and it's about the 2022 Winter Olympics. And then President Xi Jinping will, in reality, in 2022, say something else than what he said in my novel. But my thing was written beforehand. Yeah, I don't know. It's a mess, dude. It's a mess. I'm just hoping to... I don't know. I don't know what I'm hoping for. I don't know what I'm hoping for. But um that does that does sort of connect to this other thing I've been thinking about, which is that um like I broke my foot three months ago and I've been dealing with insurance companies in America and and because I, I broke my foot and it, it, um, I went to the ER and I got an x-ray and I got a boot and they, they didn't do much. They just kind of gave me a boot and the whole thing was four grand because there was a radiologist that looked at it and wrote a little report. So a bill was produced and it's $4,000. And then I had health insurance and the health insurance was from a different state, but it covers ER visits all over the country. So I was like, this should probably be good. They'll probably cover it. We'll see what happens. And then the point of the point of it is that like in America people get you get health insurance and you sort of have health insurance and you have access to healthcare, but there's not this like profound sense of trust. Like you don't really trust it. Some people can trust it a little bit. Like the very wealthy can live with a sense of trust in the sense that they can trust that they will be taken care of and that 
you know, if something happens and the insurance company doesn't really cover it, they can cover it themselves and there will be care. They will be cared for correctly, as good as we can do it, you know, with modern medicine. And they can live, like the very wealthy can live with a sense of trust, but but I compare it to Sweden where, in Sweden we have this very interesting social experiment where people people have this like almost insane expectation to be cared for and you live with a sense of trust and and honestly, it's good. It's good because trusting that a socialized medicine sort of healthcare system will take care of you does not mean that you go and abuse the system and get more care than you should. It just doesn't because no one wants to go to the hospital. You don't go to the hospital when you don't need to. But it starts even before that because I was talking to Javi about this, how when you're born in Sweden, your parents get Bollenbidrag, which is just money from the government for each kid. They get about $150 per kid per month. And if you have more kids, there's an extra amount of money, I think. But you get $150 per kid. And then when you turn 16, it changes over and it's no longer the parents that get the $150. It's now the kid, the 16-year-old gets the $150 in their bank account. And it's very interesting what that does psychologically, because in a place like America, you grow up and you probably have an allowance. And everyone has a different size allowance. Maybe poor people don't have an allowance at all. Maybe a lot of people have to do chores to get an allowance. But in Sweden, there's this separation where just psychologically you feel like the money is not coming from your parents, even though it is, because it's taxpayer money and your parents are taxpayers. And it's it's coming from all the parents. It's coming from the big pool of all parents. And there is something nice about that equalization thing where everyone gets the same allowance from the government. And it makes you separate out from your parents a little bit more. I don't know how to describe this. This is almost like an unfinished thought that I think really matters. But there is a sort of... There is something... I don't want to exaggerate how intentional it is because it's more a more basic idea and it's a very wholesome idea of how we should do things. And it's, it's like a little bit, you know, in the olden day, like the old, the fundamental foundational idea is a little bit communist and stuff. It's, you know, it's back in the day, you know, communism wasn't all bad and, and you could do a little bit of it. You could do a little bit of communism and it'd be okay. And, um, so you grow up feeling less dependent on your parents and you feel more like there's this thing you can trust, this big entity out there that will give you some money. Whereas in America, you have this like almost more disconnected feeling where you get money from your parents and the the family unit that you are a pa part of is not part of anything bigger. It's just that you have this tiny tribe 
And if that tiny tribe can't take care of you, then, then you're a little bit screwed. And, and, you know, the Swedish system is, it's, it's, it connects with that other thing of like how, if you go to like a boarding school in the UK, everyone has like a, the same school uniform and, and the school uniform has a strong psychological effect of, of erasing differences. So you don't really know who's poor and rich in this super obvious way because everyone is asked to just wear the same uniform. We're just going to do homogeneity. And we're going to make it easier psychologically for the poor kids. And we're just going to let them be, you know? And the money from the government, the allowance from the government, getting 150 bucks every month from the government, it's the same. It's like everyone gets the same amount of money. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. And the thing is, even before you turn 16, a lot of people just get – even before when you, before you turn 16, your parents get the money from the government. But many parents who don't – who have a job and don't really need 150 bucks just hand – just forward that money to the kid. But already then, it creates this psychological thing where you feel like the money is coming from the government. So you don't walk around with this sense of like gratitude, this sense of like debt owed to your parents, even though the fact that thousands of kids can get this $150 every month is because thousands of parents pay into the system. You know what I mean? So it's like an artificial layer of separation, but... But psychologically, it creates this thing where, where you just trust that there's this thing out there that takes care of you. And then the way healthcare works in Sweden is, I don't know, maybe it's broken now. Maybe people don't trust it anymore, but, but it's a deep sense of trust. It's a deep sense of trust where you feel like you are owed healthcare. Because we set up this system and we all pay to have the system think, be there and the system has been there and the system will continue to be there and you trust it, you know? It's the same feeling of, yeah, it's the same as the tribe thing of just like trusting that something will remain there for you. It's one of the most important things and it's like, it's a shame that we need that because the world is ever-changing and things do not remain there for us. They don't, you know? The universe is uh, in a state of, um, you know, everything is falling apart. But we need things to remain for us. Uh, and I just keep picking at this itchy scab on my index finger. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> let me tell you what it's like in America, you know, where you don't trust it. I broke my foot. I pretty quick, I get a bill pretty quickly. And then I'm, I mean, there is such a long version of the story, which is very boring, but but I, I call the billing department at the hospital and I, I give them my health insurance info. And um, I um, t 
tell them to submit a claim. That's how it is. You submit a claim to the health insurance company and the insurance company decides if they are going to pay the claim or not. And then they say what portion you pay and it's hopefully a smaller portion and then what they pay and it's hopefully a bigger portion. And then you're told to check in after three, four weeks because that's how long it takes for the the little, you know, the little fish to swim through the health insurance aquarium between all the little sea anemones and the little seaweed and and under the under the anchor and, and through everything. And I call and then it's just like this super unsatisfying result where the health insurance company just says that there's a coding error. So then I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? And then I find out that there's this code system in America where every procedure, every treatment, every medication, everything that happens in a hospital has a code. And the code is uniform across the country so that you can communicate clearly because the same procedure might be called slightly different things in different places, different doctor might call it different things, blah, blah, blah. So instead of using words, use a code to describe what it is. So they need to do some sort of like foot was broken and treated in ER code, like a code that that summarizes that that's what it was. It was an ankle fracture in an ER, whatever. And so they've used the wrong code. And then I need the fucking coding department at the hospital to contact the health insurance company. And it literally took 10 phone calls because the coding experts in the back end, you can't call them directly. Not even the billing department has the phone number of the coding experts. The coding experts can only be contacted through a form in the back end where you write a description of what they need to look at, like the case they need to create. So I'm talking to these people on the phone and they submit a sort of ticket to the coding team so that the coding team will fix it. And it's fucked. And it's like only the healthcare provider, only the doctor can change the code. And he is in a separate, he's not part of the hospital. He's like external. Oh my God. And like he, no one will talk to the health insurance company and everyone just says, no, you can't talk to us. You have to talk to someone else. And it's, it's took so many phone calls to have them fix the code and resubmit. And then finally, after all these phone calls, it's like, okay, we're submitting it now. The code was fixed. We're submitting it now. And sidebar on that is like one big thing I've learned in life. I'm now 35 years old. One big thing I've learned in life with bureaucracy and weird calling to get something bureaucratic, paperworky going. One big thing I've noticed is like, oftentimes when you call and you hit a, a, a brick wall, you hit a dead end, you can just hang up and call again and you get to talk to a different person and that other person might just be better at it. Because it's really squishy back there. Every, all this stuff that it sounds like there are rules and clear policies, it's really just different. Like if you're trying to get your money back from an airline, you can, and they say that you can't get the money back, just hang up and call again and you're going to get to talk to a new person in this vast call center wherever. And maybe the new person you're talking to is just a little bit more creative or a little bit less creative. Who, who knows? Who knows what's necessary? But you call back and and things might go better. Are we still recording? Oh boy, this is going to be a long episode. But so, 
after like 15 phone calls, the code was fixed and a new thing was submitted. And I was told again to call back in three, four weeks and that they would um, have an answer for me if the health insurance company is going to pay or not. And so I call back, call back four weeks later. And the thing that the lady tells me is that, yeah, they, 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 they fixed the, the thing and they forgot to press submit so that she has like this unsent draft. <laughs> that's just been chilling in some sort of outbox for four weeks. So I'm like, oh, well, isn't that unfortunate, Patricia? Isn't that unfortunate? And I have this little document because another sidebar is like, when it comes to this kind of stuff of banging your head against the wall with bureaucratic stuff, I do think that it's important to keep your eyes on the prize in terms of how much is your time worth? Because if you're trying to get $20 back and it's taking all these phone calls, quantify for yourself how much your time is worth. And if your time is worth like, come up with an actual number. Like I like to think that my time is worth something like 50 bucks an hour or something. And if I can spend an hour on something and save $50, I probably should. And if it's going to take many hours and it's only going to save me $50. I can probably go do something else. And I can probably let that $50 fly out the window and it's all right. So the thing about this thing is that it's $4,000. So if my time is worth 50 bucks an hour, then I should not just give up and pay the $4,000. I should keep calling, you know? Because I, I can spend I like I can spend an hour a week on this for months and still have it be worth it. So <laughs> I'm banging my head against the wall here, and I keep banging and fucking. And I had this log is what I was gonna say, where I like write down what they say every time, and I'm like, okay, you know, August. I mean, that thing happened in like July or something, and it's like July seventeenth. You know, talk to fucking Brianna. She told me this. Talk to, you know, who knows? Who knows who? So I have this log where I'm like, okay, so I know that this fucking Stephanie I talked to a month ago apparently just forgot to press submit. But it's like, what good is this log? <laughs> am I going to go to Stephanie's house and like shit on her porch? Like, no. It doesn't matter that I know that Stephanie made a mistake. Like, none of this is helpful in any way. So I get, <laughs> I get them to... To freak-a-dick-a-lickly-lessly press submit this time. And then I wait another four weeks. And then... <laughs> and then I call back and it's like stuck in a weird pending state where like it's pending. Someone call, said, tells, tells me it's pending. Someone else tells me they approved it and that they paid like a tiny portion and that I have to pay like $3,500. And then... I call my insurance company because I really run into a dead end with the hospital. And I call the insurance company. I'm like, why is this getting denied? Like, why are you guys not paying this? And the insurance company never gives me any good information. And and oh, I could make this story so infinitely long, but like the claims department where you actually call to talk about an active claim that you're trying to work your way through – they don't have a phone number and the phone number listed actually goes to customer service. And then customer service will tell you that they can connect you through to the claims department. But if you want to call the claims department directly, 
there's this phone number and they give you the phone number and then you say, well, that's actually the phone number I called and I got to you. And then they say, oh, you call that number? Well, here in my notes, it says that's the claims department number. And then you say, yeah, no, it's not. That's the number that reaches you. And then they say, oh, okay, I'll tell my boss. And then it's like, okay, again, whatever, not helpful again. But that's okay, because as long as you can connect me through to the claims department, I'm going to be okay. And then you get connected through, and the claims department is this other roadblock where it's so clear that the insurance company has every incentive in the world to have things not work. Because if they can just have everything be stuck in a pending state forever, and they never have to pay out, then their whole business model is Gucci. Then they're just golden, you know? So the claims department is a, a, a thing you can get connected through to, but they don't have hold music. So you get put on hold, and it's silent. And it's just silent for like a long time. And then you sit there with your phone and it's just silent. But the time your phone is showing that you're still on a phone call, but it's silent. And then 20 minutes in, you just get disconnected. So you just have to keep going and you have to call again and then get connected to the claims department. And then one time I got through. And this nice man, he sounded Mexican at the claims department starts explaining to me that they don't have any communication from the hospital since the initial claim four months ago. And I'm like, what? I know that they forgot to press submit that one time three months ago, but two months ago when they, when I called back and they did submit it, it didn't ha- it, you didn't get it? And he's like, no, we didn't get it. We haven't gotten anything from them from since this first one that had the code wrong. So I called the hospital again, and I managed to dig all the way down. And what I find out is that they have submitted my claim not to Molina Washington Health Insurance. Molina is the name of the health insurance company. Washington is the state in which the health insurance company is because each state has the same health insurance company independently. Like you have to, each state has its own just iteration of each health insurance company. They're all separate. So they have submitted it to California Medicaid. Now, what you have to know about Medicaid, for those who don't know, that Medicaid is health insurance that's free from the government for people who are older than 65. And it's not even Medicaid in the right state. It's Medicaid in California. So they didn't send it to Molina, Washington. They sent it to Medicaid, California. And I turned 35 just now. I didn't turn 65. So I'm very frustrated. But... The nice Mexican man at the claims department that I finally got through to talk to, he was like, do you mind if I call the hospital directly? And I'm like, oh my God, I love that. Could you do that? And he calls them and he puts me on hold forever. And that's okay because I understand that it takes a long time to call this hospital. And he gets connected through a bunch of times to the hospital and he doesn't give up and he does the thing for me properly, I think. And he's like eventually at the end, he gets back to me and he's like, I'm sorry that took so long. I had to talk to so many people at the hospital. I gave them the correct code. I gave them exactly how they should submit. I gave them the address they should submit to. And now they've submitted. And then I trust him. 
And the thing is that all at every step, it's always felt like, oh, yeah, I resolved it now. And then it's never resolved. So it's probably not resolved. No, I don't know. I don't know. It might be resolved. Anyway, I'm working so much at this restaurant that now I'm about to just pay a $4,000 hospital bill because who gives a shit? But we're rubbing up against the um, how much is my time worth? But $4,000 is a lot, so... um... Yeah. But the point is that I do think that this experience is representative for how Americans experience healthcare and who pays for healthcare and all that stuff. And the point is that even though it, I was going to say, even though it always works out, but that's not true. It doesn't always work out. In America, there's plenty of people who die from preventable things. And there's a lot of the actual prevention work of just getting healthcare when you're well, to keep you weller, to keep you really well, like all that stuff is fucked in America. And the psychological effect is that you walk around not feeling like you can trust it. And then, you know, Bob's your uncle, now you're an anti-vaxxer. So let's drink the last one here. Um, LaCroix. Beach plum. This was a little funny thing they did this year where... They came up with these funny names, which is maybe what LaCroix always does. But here, this is a peach plum flavor, but they they changed it from peach to beach. So I don't think it says plum anywhere on here, but there... No, I don't think it says peach anywhere, but there is a picture of a peach. Sparkling water, beach plum, naturally essenced. Smells good. Smells fake, smells light, smells good. Yeah, that's no good. That's no good. That is so fake tasting compared to these incredible fresh kimonos. The kimonos, I gave the first one a nine, the second one, eight. Still good. The first one was better. This is like so papery and this is like Joss paper. You can see right through this bullshit. I mean, it's not gross or anything, so it's a five. It's refreshing, but it's like that little bit of flavor that you have there is not good. So that's a five. Yeah. I mean, I could keep going forever, but... um, I try to keep the episodes to be an hour 10, an hour 15, and and we are well beyond that at this point. So uh, I'm going to wrap this up. I think that was an episode. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'm sorry if that was like a belligerent, kind of boring episode, but I don't know, you know? I don't make the rules, but I love you guys, and uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>